Part One, Chapter Five, of the Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Foresight Saga, The Man of Property by John Galsworthy. Part One, Chapter Five, A Foresight Menage. Like the enlightened thousands of his class and generation in this great city of London, who no longer believe in red velvet chairs and know that groups of modern Italian marble are vieux jeu, Soames Forsyte inhabited a house which did what it could. It owned a copper door knocker of individual design, windows which had been altered to open outwards, hanging flower boxes filled with fuchsias, and at the back, a great feature, a little court tiled with jade-green tiles, and surrounded by pink hydrangeas in peacock-blue tubs. Here, under a parchment-coloured Japanese sunshade covering the whole end, inhabitants or visitors could be screened from the eyes of the curious while they drank tea and examined at their leisure the latest of Soames's little silver boxes. The inner decoration favoured the First Empire and William Morris. For its size the house was commodious. There were countless nooks resembling birds' nests, and little things made of silver were deposited like eggs. In this general perfection two kinds of fastidiousness were at war. There lived here a mistress who would have dwelt daintily on a desert island, a master whose daintiness was, as it were, an investment, cultivated by the owner for his advancement, in accordance with the laws of competition. This competitive daintiness had caused Soames, in his Marlborough days, to be the first boy into white waistcoats in summer, and corduroy waistcoats in winter, had prevented him from ever appearing in public with his tie climbing up his collar, and induced him to dust his patent leather boots before a great multitude assembled on speech-day to hear him recite Molière. Skin-like immaculateness had grown over Soames, as over many Londoners, impossible to conceive of him with a hair out of place, a tie deviating one-eighth of an inch from the perpendicular, a collar unglossed. He would not have gone without a bath for worlds. It was the fashion to take baths, and how bitter was his scorn of people who omitted them. But Irene could be imagined, like some nymph, bathing in wayside streams, for the joy of the freshness and of seeing her own fair body. In this conflict throughout the house, the woman had gone to the wall. As in the struggle between Saxon and Celt still going on within the nation, the more impressionable and receptive temperament had had forced on it a conventional superstructure. Thus the house had acquired a close resemblance to hundreds of other houses, with the same high aspirations, having become that very charming little house of the Soames Forsytes, quite individual, my dear, really elegant. For Soames Forsyte, Reed, James Peabody, Thomas Atkins, or Emmanuel Spagnoletti, the name, in fact, of any upper-middle-class Englishman in London with any pretensions to taste, and though the decoration be different, the phrase is just. On the evening of August the 8th, a week after the expedition to Robin Hill, in the dining-room of this house. Quite individual, my dear, really elegant. Soames and Irene were seated at dinner. 
A hot dinner on Sundays was a little distinguishing elegance common to this house and many others. Early in married life Soames had laid down the rule. The servants must give us hot dinner on Sundays. They have nothing to do but play the concertina. The custom had produced no revolution, for, to Soames a rather deplorable sign, servants were devoted to Irene, who, in defiance of all safe tradition, appeared to recognise their right to a share in the weaknesses of human nature. The happy pair were seated not opposite each other, but rectangularly, at a handsome rosewood table. They dined without a cloth, a distinguishing elegance, and so far had not spoken a word. Soames liked to talk during dinner about business, or what he had been buying, and so long as he talked Irene's silence did not distress him. This evening he had found it impossible to talk. The decision to build had been weighing on his mind all the week, and he had made up his mind to tell her. His nervousness about this disclosure irritated him profoundly. She had no business to make him feel like that, a wife and a husband being one person. She had not looked at him once since they sat down, and he wondered what on earth she had been thinking about all the time. It was hard when a man worked, as he did, making money for her, yes, and with an ache in his heart, that she should sit there looking, looking as if she saw the walls of the room closing in. It was enough to make a man get up and leave the table. The light from the rose-shaded lamp fell on her neck and arms. Soames liked her to dine in a low dress. It gave him an inexpressible feeling of superiority to the majority of his acquaintance, whose wives were contented with their best high frocks or with tea-gowns when they dined at home. Under that rosy light her amber-coloured hair and fair skin made strange contrast with her dark brown eyes. Could a man own anything prettier than this dining-table, with its deep tints, the starry soft-petalled roses, the ruby-coloured glass and quaint silver furnishing? Could a man own anything prettier than the woman who sat at it? Gratitude was no virtue among Forsytes, who, competitive and full of common sense, had no occasion for it, and Soames only experienced a sense of exasperation amounting to pain that he did not own her as it was his right to own her, that he could not, as by stretching out his hand to that rose, pluck her and sniff the very secrets of her heart. Out of his other property, out of all the things he had collected, his silver, his pictures, his houses, his investments, he got a secret and intimate feeling. Out of her he got none. In this house of his there was writing on every wall. His business-like temperament protested against a mysterious warning that she was not made for him. He had married this woman, conquered her, made her his own, and it seemed to him contrary to the most fundamental of all laws, the law of possession, that he could do no more than own her body if indeed he could do that, which he was beginning to doubt. If any one had asked him if he wanted to own her soul, the question would have seemed to him both ridiculous and sentimental. But he did so want, and the writing said he never would. She was ever silent, passive, gracefully averse, 
as though terrified lest by word, motion, or sign she might lead him to believe that she was fond of him, and he asked himself, "'Must I always go on like this?' Like most novel-readers of his generation, and Soames was a great novel-reader, literature coloured his view of life, and he had imbibed the belief that it was only a question of time. In the end the husband always gained the affection of his wife. Even in those cases, a class of book he was not very fond of, which ended in tragedy, the wife always died with poignant regrets on her lips. Or, if it were the husband who died, unpleasant thought, threw herself on his body in an agony of remorse. He often took Irene to the theatre, instinctively choosing the modern society plays with the modern society conjugal problem, so fortunately different from any conjugal problem in real life. He found that they too always ended in the same way, even when there was a lover in the case. While he was watching the play, Soames often sympathised with the lover. But before he reached home again, driving with Irene in a hansom, he saw that this would not do and he was glad the play had ended as it had. There was one class of husband that had just then come into fashion, the strong, rather rough, but extremely sound man, who was peculiarly successful at the end of the play. With this person Soames was really not in sympathy, and had it not been for his own position would have expressed his disgust with the fellow. But he was so conscious of how vital to himself was the necessity for being a successful, even a strong husband, that he never spoke of a distaste born, perhaps by the perverse processes of nature, out of a secret fund of brutality in himself. But Irene's silence this evening was exceptional. He had never before seen such an expression on her face, and since it is always the unusual which alarms. Soames was alarmed. He ate his savoury, and hurried the maid as she swept off the crumbs with the silver sweeper. When she had left the room he filled his glass with wine, and said, "'Anybody been here this afternoon?' "'June.' "'What did she want?' It was an axiom with the Forsytes that people did not go anywhere unless they wanted something. "'Came to talk about her lover, I suppose?' Irene made no reply. "'It looks to me,' continued Soames, "'as if she was sweeter on him than he is on her. "'She's always following him about.' Irene's eyes made him feel uncomfortable. "'You've no business to say such a thing,' she exclaimed. "'Why not? Anybody can see it.' "'They cannot. And if they could, it's disgraceful to say so.' Soames's composure gave way. "'You're a pretty wife,' he said but secretly he wondered at the heat of her reply. It was unlike her. "'You're cracked about June. I can tell you one thing. Now she has the buccaneer in tow. She doesn't care tuppence about you, and you'll find it out. But you won't see so much of her in future. We're going to live in the country.' He had been glad to get his news out, under cover of this burst of irritation. He had expected a cry of dismay. The silence with which his pronouncement was received alarmed him. "'You don't seem interested,' he was obliged to add. "'I knew it already.' He looked at her sharply. "'Who told you?' "'June.' "'How did she know?' Irene did not answer. Baffled and uncomfortable, he said, 
It's a fine thing for Bossini. It'll be the making of him. I suppose she's told you all about it? Yes. There was another pause, and then Soames said, I suppose you don't want to go. Irene made no reply. Well, I can't tell what you want. You never seem contented here. Have my wishes anything to do with it? She took the vase of roses and left the room. Soames remained seated. Was it for this that he'd signed that contract? Was it for this that he was going to spend some ten thousand pounds? Bossini's phrase came back to him. Women are the devil. But presently he grew calmer. It might have been worse. She might have flared up. He had expected something more than this. It was lucky, after all, that June had broken the ice for him. She must have wormed it out of Bossini. He might have known she would. He lighted his cigarette. After all, Irene had not made a scene. She would come round. That was the best of her. She was cold, but not sulky. And, puffing the cigarette smoke at a ladybird on the shining table, he plunged into a reverie about the house. It was no good worrying. He would go and make it up presently. She would be sitting out there in the dark under the Japanese sunshade, knitting. A beautiful, warm night. In truth, June had come in that afternoon with shining eyes and the words, "'Soames is a brick! It's splendid for Phil! The very thing for him!' Irene's face remaining dark and puzzled. She went on, "'Your new house at Robin Hill, of course. What, don't you know?' Irene did not know. "'Oh!' Oh, then I suppose I shouldn't have told you. Looking impatiently at her friend, she cried, You look as if you didn't care. Don't you see? It's what I've been praying for. The very chance he's been wanting all this time. Now you'll see what he can do. And thereupon she poured out the whole story. Since her own engagement, she had not seemed much interested in her friend's position. The hours she spent with Irene were given to confidences of her own, and at times, for all her affectionate pity, it was impossible to keep out of her smile a trace of compassionate contempt for the woman who had made such a mistake in her life, such a vast, ridiculous mistake. "'He's to have all the decorations as well. A free hand. It's perfect!' June broke into laughter. Her little figure quivered gleefully. She raised her hand and struck a blow at a muslin curtain. "'Do you know, I even asked Uncle James—' but. With a sudden dislike to mentioning that incident, she stopped, and presently, finding her friend so unresponsive, went away. She looked back from the pavement, and Irene was still standing in the doorway. In response to her farewell wave, Irene put her hand to her brow, and, turning slowly, shut the door. Soames went to the drawing-room presently, and peered at her through the window. Out in the shadow of the Japanese sunshade she was sitting very still, the lace on her white shoulders stirring with the soft rise and fall of her bosom. But about this silent creature, sitting there so motionless in the dark, there seemed a warmth, a hidden fervour of feeling, as if the whole of her being had been stirred, and some change were taking place in its very depths. He stole back to the dining-room unnoticed. End of Part 1 Chapter 5